Epictetus, we think, died when Marcus Aurelius was aged roughly 15. And Marcus hadn't left Rome and Epictetus had been exiled like a generation earlier and was living in Greece. So Marcus wouldn't have met Epictetus, but he would have known loads of teachers, uh, older men, mm. who probably had met Epictetus. Marcus Aurelius's main tutor was a guy called Junius Rusticus, his main Stoic tutor, his right-hand man, in fact. And uh, we know from one really obscure source that Junius Rusticus seems to have served in the army alongside uh, Ariane, who was the student who wrote down all of Epictetus's discourses. Epictetus wrote nothing. Okay. Like, all the discourses are written by one of his students called Ariane, who was a highly accomplished writer, prolific writer, and one of the most senior statesmen and generals under Hadrian, uh, one of the mm. preceding emperors. And so Ariane Junius Rusticus served in the war against the Alani, like in Armenia. And uh, Junius Rusticus then came back to Rome. And Marcus Aurelius says at the beginning of the Meditations that one of the most seismic events in his life was that Junius Rusticus gave him a copy of notes from the lectures of Epictetus from his private library. Right. Now, why does he say from his private library? I think because of something that Ariane says in the preface he wrote to the discourses, which people usually don't pay that much attention to. Ariane says that the discourses were written down initially to be only circulated in private among a circle of his friends, and they were basically mm. leaked and became public at some point. Right. I suspect Marcus Aurelius emphasises that he got them from Junius Rusticus's private library because at that point, Marcus believed that Epictetus had written nothing and no record of his teaching survived. It would be like this amazing rock star, like the most famous guy in the yeah. world. You never got a chance. He died before you got a chance to ever go and see him perform. And then one day Junius Rusticus said, look, you seem to be really into stoicism, kid. Like, let me show you something that nobody even knows exists. And he yeah. opened the cupboard and showed him vo eight volumes. Only half of them survived today, by the way. Marcus had read twice really? as many discourses with Epictetus. And that would have been like a huge collection of bootlegs. Yeah. Like, it must have blown his mind. Yeah. And so I think one of the reasons <laughs> that Marcus became such a passionate follower of Epictetus is that he got this kind of VIP... It's a symbolism as well, isn't it, of actually having that experience. Yeah, you know, like it, it must have been yeah. incredible. He would have been about 15 and thought, like, it's a shame that the most important teacher of philosophy never le left any records. And then this guy one day says, yeah. I've got all these bootlegs. <laughs> like, I've got, like, yeah. volumes and volumes of recordings of his teachings. Like, you can have it. It's, it's probably like going through your life and having never heard the Beatles, but just having heard of them, and then suddenly someone finds an LP or something. Collection. <laughs> and so Marcus loves Epictetus, and he's the main philosopher that he quotes. Um, and he's read mm. more of Epictetus than we yeah. have. So, you know, even yeah. though they'd never met, Marcus is kind of, to a large extent, a, a sort of disciple of Epictetus. And that's why that's pretty, that's, he quotes him yeah. and paraphrases from him in the meditations. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay. Um, we've already chatted loads. I haven't really talked too much on Marcus's history in your book. I know we've touched on certain bits. Well, I do want to have a quick rundown of the Academy before like, we just very, very quickly just read out one of your favourite quotes and, and break that down that's relevant cool. to today, Lil, as well. So perhaps if you want to, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, Donald, I'm going to say we've got about five minutes max for you to just give what you like on some history of Marcus Aurelius, some little facts, trivia, or things that people can pick up, of course, in the book or can elaborate on further by reading it. To say uh, now a little bit about Marcus Aurelius, well, I've just finished doing this graphic novel and then the more academic prose biography. 
I would say the things that... Do, do throw out the names and say when they're out as well. Well, the graphic novel's called Verissimus, and it's coming out in June. And then the prose biography is called Mark's Really Ancient Lives. It's by Yale University Press. And it's coming out probably in around about October, I think. So sometimes people say to me, did I change my mind about Marcus by writing these different sorts of books? And in some ways I did. I learned more. I think by writing the graphic novel, I gained a greater appreciation for how the Antonine Plague affected him um mm. because normally we mention that there was a big plague and then we move on and talk about the rest of his life but when you yeah. visualize it you realize that the plague was always there throughout the rest of his career as emperor most of his mm. time as emperor people he was surrounded by death and so i think this mm. really transformed the atmosphere in rome it probably made stoicism even more sort of helpful for him stoicism as well. became but kind of trendy at the time and then mysteriously mm. it sort of died off afterwards um, and in the prose biography, the, the first couple of chapters are about Marcus Aurelius's mother and about the Emperor Hadrian. So I don't think people say enough about the influence that Marcus's mother had on him. She was a, uh, an intellectual and she spoke fluent Greek and she surrounded herself with a, a circle of, uh, uh, intellectuals and she was a, a, a construction industry magnate, surprisingly. She was an unusually <laughs> Uh, wealthy and independent uh, Roman uh, matriarch. She was an exceptional woman, and uh, I think Marcus's mm. mother. I think it's possible. I don't know this for sure. I'm just speculating now. Mm. I think there's a possibility that Marcus's mother was the one who introduced him to Stoicism. There's some possible had a much bigger influence on his life than people. There's think. a hint that she was friends with Junius Rusticus, like um, mm. so. It, it may be that she already knew these guys, and she would have yeah. been in charge of choosing Marcus's teachers. Marcus's teachers are mainly Stoics. Like so, we could say his yeah. behind every great man is a great woman kind of thing. It looks like his yeah. mum was the one saying, "I want my son educated by all these yeah. famous Stoic teachers." And then Hadrian, you know, I don't think enough is said about the influence that Hadrian had. Hadrian was Marcus Aurelius's adoptive grandfather. Um, I saw somebody wrote an Amazon review and they disagreed with me about this. He called Marcus barely have known Hadrian. Marcus lived with Hadrian for about six months, you know, just before Hadrian's mm. death. So I think he knew him pretty well, actually. Um, and yeah. Hadrian chose Marcus from a very young age to kind of groom him as, as a, uh, yeah. a potential uh, successor. So Hadrian had a lot of influence over Marcus's upbringing. But Hadrian, towards the end of his life, went crazy and engaged in these violent political purges. And I think it's clear that Marcus is at best ambivalent about Hadrian and possibly saw him as becoming something of a tyrant towards the end of his life. So I think mm. part of what motivated Marcus, part of Marcus's psychology is that as a young guy, he thought, I don't want to end up like Hadrian. How yeah. can I avoid and, and, and doing I that? He, if he perceives him almost like a father figure, that that's, you know, obviously something that is true for all of us, really. I think um, he you know, turns to stoicism as a way of pre- preventing himself from ending up as yeah. crazy and paranoid and tyrannical as, as soon as he noticed any of those similar emotions coming out or actions he would then jump back and then think hang on what are we doing look at it here's a little bit of trivia for you and all about historical trivia is i often say that marcus aurelius had a problem managing his anger and so sometimes people say well how would you know that well if you look closely he actually tells us that at the beginning of the meditations he says mm. in black and white that he had problems managing his anger at some point in life probably his youth by the sounds of it and that he was grateful to the gods that he never did anything that he might have regretted. Mm. And throughout the meditations, you'll notice there are actually a surprising number of references to anger. There's one passage 
11.18, where he lists 10 separate cognitive strategies for managing anger. And then throughout the book, he returns to selections from that list. So one of the main themes in the meditations is coping with anger, because he's told us that as a, a young man, he had Managing I, I also don't doubt, and you know, perhaps partly why some of the themes do recur as well, is that he's sometimes doing this for for himself. You know, he might yeah. be going through things in that, those stages of life. You know, there's quite a lot that comes up when you're ruling the Roman Empire and you're at war. You've got the plague and everything else to deal with. And there may have been moments where he saw, I almost reacted then. I'm sitting writing something. He's almost reminding himself, not necessarily, because, you know, it was, ultimately he was writing for himself, wasn't he, at the time? So He was writing it on the Danube, on the frontier, in the middle of what he called the war, what the Romans called anyway, yeah. the war of many nations. And in the, in the middle of the plague. And then he also, after he finished the meditations, faced a civil war. So I, there's some, something I'll mention, actually, it's of interest about the way the meditations is written. It's artfully vague. Someone got annoyed with me for saying yes. that, but I'll stand yeah. by that. It's surprising, in a way, that there aren't more. There are some specific references to individuals or events. But generally, he's mm. especially for, if you, from a historian's perspective, a biographer's perspective, it's frustrating. I'll give you one example. One of the I, most... I don't think it'd be as great, though, if it was so... Yeah, so personal. Well, I, I people think, yeah. wouldn't see themselves in the pages as much. Yeah. So a, a simple example is Meditations 2.1, which is one of the most widely quoted passages. He says, every morning when you awake and tell yourself that you're going to meet treacherous, meddling, yeah. uh, belligerent people and so on and, and prepare to cope with them, right? He doesn't He doesn't name any names, right? And he, Or he doesn't even give any kind of clues as to what sort of people he's talking about. So we read that and think, my mother-in-law's a bit like that. Oh, that guy that works in the in the in the desk across from me is a little bit like that. Yeah. You know, we we can immerse ourselves in it and identify ourselves with it in a way 100%. that we couldn't if he was being more specific. Talking about someone specific in his army or something. Yeah. But as a biographer, <laughs> obviously we read that and think he must at some level have in mind examples of people that he's talking about. Yeah. And he mentions treason. He's facing a civil war, he's faced a huge betrayal from Roman allies. Um, mm. It would be really interesting. And he's writing this in the middle of uh, dealing with ambassadors. If he wrote some notes to go with it all as well, the personal thing behind each story, that would be fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting challenge to connect these kind of vague comments to the actual yeah. historical events that were happening around him as he wrote them. Um, I mean, he may just be talking in that passage about one of yeah. his relatives that's kind of annoying. But he may also be talking about these seismic world history changing events that are going on around. Yeah. There'll be something that's triggered it. Yeah, whether it's something personal, whether it's something he's witnessed in others or what have you. There's something that's going to have triggered him to say, ah, that's a good thing for me to sit and write, you know, and be fascinated if we could know what they were. But uh, <laughs> um, okay, before we go and pick your passage, um, obviously it's actually one of the reasons I reached out to you in the first place because it was just pretty like amazed really to see that you're um sort of bringing back a little bit of history of Athens yourself with um sort of re-establishing is that the right, is that the right word the sort of Plato Academy yeah. um based around the same grounds where the original one well disappeared what 1800 years ago something like that <laughs> it was so tell us a bit about that well Plato's Academy is uh, every single academy is named after it so it's weirdly recognisable to people, even if they don't know anything yeah. else about it. It was the first 
academic institution in a sense in in Western history. Um, it was in a gymnasium, which is not what we call a gymnasium today. A gymnasium is like a building mm. where you do sports and stuff. An ancient Greek gymnasium is a was more like a recreational ground, like it's a big. Like thirty, forty acre sports ground with running tracks, a palestra, a wrestling school, boxing. So young, mainly adolescents would do these sports there, and older men would hang around and discuss politics and philosophy. If you can kind of imagine that in this lush park with streams. Sounds like sounds really interesting, really good. So Plato <laughs> would walk around. <laughs> also, Plato was buried there. Like his tomb was there was as okay. well. So when you're walking yeah. there now, it's a park today. But tourists don't go there. It's mainly Athenians that walk their dogs there and do taekwondo there mm. and whatever they do. So like as you're walking around there, you might think Plato's bones are maybe under the ground here. Like Plato used to walk around here. Socrates probably also walked yeah. around there and other philosophers doing philosophy, but there's not much philosophy that's done there anymore. So I thought, number one, wouldn't it be cool if people did more philosophy here? And number two, wouldn't it be good if more people knew about this? And number three, why isn't there an international conference centre here? Like, it seems like the most obvious thing to do, because also it's a yeah. poor, economically deprived area. And Greece has been through a terrible uh, economic catastrophe. And so, you know, the Greeks want to find ways that they can legitimately use their cultural assets to benefit their economy. And one of them would be if they brought businesses and tourists to places like Plato's Academy Park, Academia Platanos, yeah. uh, and bring foreign revenue and investment into Was this Greece. the rhetoric that you used to get the... Uh, That's the rhetoric that you... <laughs> get, the, get the go ahead. Yeah, it seems pretty stupid, but <laughs> the thing was, I started saying that. I thought, why don't you guys... It, you know, it's one of those ideas where you think, why isn't someone already doing this? I thought, it, it started off as me yeah. going, why, why have you guys not done this? Yeah. And then people started to say to me, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I don't know anything about building a conference. <laughs> right. But then I realised that one of my friends does. Like, uh, yeah. my good friend, um, James O'Neill is a chartered surveyor. He specializes in these things. And then I realized I knew a bunch of other people who were involved in similar projects in Greece. And within a year, we had uh, a business plan, a proposal, and, uh, we uh, became part of an incubator program. And, uh, we got seed funding from a foundation in the UK, the Aurelius Foundation. And, uh, mm. we, Started a built a virtual community online that took off like a house on fire, and we are now organising a virtual conference in May with a bunch of senior academics speaking about it. Like, Excellent. So we've got a board of advisors now with a bunch of. T- t- tell us where people can get more info. Yeah. I know I'm on the Facebook group. Just go. The website is just play. Now there are a bunch of other websites with similar names. Ours is Plato's Academy dot org. Like, okay. So if they and, and there's the Facebook group as well, because I know I think you put out content. Well, like on nearly there, two and a half thousand people in the Facebook group, and we only just started it up. So you can go to the Facebook. Oh, yeah, group. I think I remember when you started it. about a month ago, right? It took up boom, like, and then uh, on Twitter. And that's just called Plato's Academy, isn't it? Is it just Plato's, Plato's Academy, Academy Center? Is the okay the full name of the yeah. the the nonprofit? I should say this is a nonprofit. It's what the Greeks call a civil non-profit association, incidentally. So it's the, the so, idea. So you've actually built something on the grounds there as well. Then we're in the process or? of doing that. So what will happen is the Greek government have plans to build an open air structure in the park, like maybe a Excellent. bit like a yeah. kind of store, but we're not. They haven't given us all yeah. the details yet. But there's going to be some events in the summer in the open air, and then we are in the process of acquiring property that we would then 
use as a conference facility. We're going to um, basically build Brilliant. a conference center there. And in the meantime, we're building a, a virtual community. So we'll have virtual events. And then when the conference center is ready, we'll have similar events there physically. But we are, we're running, um, for, a, a, we are running events there already this September for, uh, an organ, for an organization. Uh, it's not open to the general public, but we, in the future, the events will be uh, available to the public. Brilliant. Yeah, and, and guys, if you are listening, I would suggest um, certainly check out the website and do join the Facebook group as well. Um, because uh, even though I don't get to spend too much time on social media, I do browse from time to time and there is some awesome content on there already. And, and you know, ultimately you're doing, you know, you've got the fascination with the history and everything else, but you're, you're also doing some great things that, you know, help people. And ultimately that's what you do for your living, um, your sort of background anyway. So, so well worth looking at. Um, now... Just to finish up, so we've tried chatted for ages, which has been awesome. You know, hopefully, um, like listeners, got some enjoyable content. I'm sure, they have. But I did um, before we came on. I did uh, ask ask Donald, like, just because the nature of this show and how it normally works, to select a passage from meditations of his choosing that's one of um, his favorites but also perhaps gives some you know good sort of context for the life we live today. Um, and it is actually. Um, I think it was a book two, passage 17, wasn't it? So that, that is one that I'd have already covered on a previous show. So what I'm going to do, if you're all right with that, is I will just read out the passage. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, if you're happy to break it down and give some context on it, thoughts on it, and, you know, any relevance to how people can use it to improve their lives today. Um, so here is the passage. In man's life, his time is a mere instant his existence a flux, his perception fogged, his whole bodily composition rotting, his mind a whirligig, his fortune unpredictable, his fame unclear. To put it shortly, all things of the body stream away like a river, all things of the mind are dreams and delusion. Life is warfare and a visit in a strange land, the only lasting fame is oblivion. What thing can escort us on our way? One thing, and one thing only, philosophy. This consists in keeping the divinity within us inviolate and free from harm, master of pleasure and pain, doing nothing without aim, truth or integrity, and independent of others' action or failure to act. Further, accepting all that happens and is allotted to it as coming from that other source, which is in its own origin, and at all times awaiting death, with the glad confidence that it is nothing more than the dissolution of the elements of which living creatures are composed. Now, if there is nothing fearful for the elements themselves, in their constant changing of each into another, why should one look anxiously in prospect at the change and dissolution of them all? This is in accordance with nature, and nothing harmful is in accordance with nature." Good time, man. Yeah, you hear my cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful passage, to be uh, honest, and relevant to what we've, we've well, touched on. Maybe I can say something yeah. about that. So let's say something stylistically Go about it. it. So Marcus is a Stoic. The Stoics were ridiculed by ancient philosophers for having a kind of dry style of speaking because they were opposed to uh, the style of rhetoric that the Sophists used, where they tried to manipulate people's emotions. The Stoics tried to be more objective. So other ancient author said, well, that can make them boring speakers sometimes. Marcus studied rhetoric under actually the leading sophist of his period, Herodes Atticus. He was okay. the most famous sophist and Greek orator 
during a period known as the Second Sophistic, when Greek sophistry became popular again at Rome. And he was a family friend of Marcus, and he trained him in rhetoric. Marcus, for many years, also trained on the Fronto, who is a leading exponent of Latin rhetoric as well. So Marcus was a great rhetorician, a speechwriter. Now, some people say they don't see that much evidence of that in the meditations, because these are really just kind of informal notes. But occasionally it comes through. That passage, I think, is probably the best example in the meditations of a very well-crafted, almost like a rhetorical exercise that might have been assigned by Fronto mm. or Rhodes Atticus. You can always see him standing on a podium. Like, yeah, it was part it's of a beautiful little speech, right? It's also a particular type of speech. It's what we would call a protractic or an exhortation to philosophy. So it's a, pe- a speech that's basically trying to motivate and inspire others to embrace the life of philosophy. We call that protractic. Mm. And uh, they, it's almost like a summary of the whole of Stoic philosophy. It starts off alluding yeah. to the view from above. It ends alluding to the contemplation of death. And then in between, there's lots of other aspects of Stoicism as well. On a historical note, many scholars have noted, he mentions there uh, life is warfare and a sojourn or a trip in a, a foreign land. He wrote that because he says underneath it, at Carnuntum in Austria, um, this uh, huge Roman legionary base on the Danube, on the frontier uh, with uh, Germania. And so yeah. Marcus was literally in surrounded by warfare and in a foreign land uh, when he wrote that passage. Mm-hmm. It seems, again, it's strange because it seems awfully vague, but when you think of where he's writing it, he's obviously referring... At some and, level. And that's, again, that's where that that trigger would have come from, to use that as the metaphor, to use that as the analogy. It, on the one hand, it's kind of a well-known metaphor. On the other hand, it clearly refers to the situation that he's physically yeah. in at the time that he's writing it. Um, so we can kind of get both. We can treat it as abstract in, in general, and we can also treat it as resonating with the, the, the realities of, of his biography, his mm. life. Um so there are many things. It's like we say, it starts off there with a view from above. It talks about really dedicating yourself to protecting the divinity within you, which is a little bit opaque. The Stoics, that means reason, basically. It means a faculty of, of yeah. moral choice. I, I think that's reason. something that you, you you read the whole book and you, you, know, you pick it up becomes from it clearer elsewhere. It you, still touches on it. Yeah. All of these are themes that he returns to again and again throughout the yeah. rest of the, the book. And then there's another point where he says that perception is missed. And the word he uses is tufos, which is a technical term or a, um, a, a kind of a term of art in Cynic and Stoic philosophy. It means smoke or mist. And the, it's like we would say smoke and mirrors today. So the, the Stoics and the Cynic would, would say, look, the world of human opinions is all smoke and mirrors. Like, mm. this is a cliche, you know. And he's using this terminology here. He's alluding to well-known philosophical tropes and reworking them into this quite dense very powerful passage yeah and I, I think it's brilliant because because like you say it does have so many different elements to it that will come to light you know in a passage of their own at different points as well um but yeah no brilliant and thank you so much for that um thank you so much for coming on donald as well it's been wonderful chatting um could bloody talk about this stuff like all day that's yeah, great sure like, well, I, I, well, I, but... I do talk about it all day <laughs> it's my hobby i bore enough people job. to death with it yeah. i'm sure you do as well yeah like... um 
guys thank you very much for listening and donald thank you again for coming on being an absolutely amazing guest and giving some awesome content for our listeners as well really really appreciate it thank you Adam. um and and yeah everybody thank you for listening and i will see you next time